Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Richard, yes, maybe this is a really silly question, <laughs> but how busy are you at the moment? I would consider myself to be very hard pressed for time. Partly because we've got a book out at the moment, so I've been on book talk. I do all sorts of interesting places doing that. Partly because we have the great pleasure of meeting and doing our rabbit hole detectives. Partly also because I've got box blight, and the box hedges in my garden have died. And so Ben and the garden, the garden, my gardener guy, he's doing all the work. So there's a lot happening. Plus, I'm writing book three in the series. So I consider myself to be quite busy. How about you, Charles? Well, I've kept box blight at bay but I have just finished writing a, a book that's taken me four or five years and I'm doing this you know all of us have a you know how much there is after you've finished a book and also the podcast and all sorts of things back at home. So would it be fair to say that if somebody found a way to deliver all the day's news to you in a single five minute source curated read from the best of the world's media would that be helpful? Do you mean a curated source in an easily digestible form of all the headline-making news in the world. Yes, yeah, so you don't have to go out and find it yourself, but you could just get it to you. Would that be useful? I'd love it. If possible. Yes. Well, luckily, somebody's actually found a way of doing just uh-huh. that. Do and it's tell. called The Knowledge. And The Knowledge is a free daily newsletter, and it makes the news manageable. Fill me up with knowledge. Where <laughs> so, would you find it? So you just have to sign up. It's very easy. You can sign up for free at theknowledge.com. And that gives you five minutes daily news. And that's it. The Knowledge makes news manageable. Holding Pocket. Welcome to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you prepare to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. And hello again, rabbit holers. Hi, Kat. Hello, Kat. How are you today? Raring to go. Slightly upset that Richard won last week, but there we are. You know, I think you have to look at success and failure and treat those two imposters both the same, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You say it with such joy in your heart. I know. Well, there's nothing worse than crowing in victory, do you think? Do you know, I agree with you. I think a, a bad winner is worse than a bad loser. Yeah. 
I was the bad loser, wasn't I? So that's not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just being neutral, like yes. Sweden. You're very scan- scandy today. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, How yeah. can you be competitive in Norway, Kat? Because the whole culture seems to me to be a culture that prides itself on its flatness in the sense of its equal and yes. democratic. It so, is. what do ambitious people in Norway do? Move to England. They move away. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, is what they do. Now, it's not really accepted to be competitive, and, unless there's things like sports or something where you're kind of competing for the country so if you can be a skier for example but they're not really celebrated in the same way there was a there's a brilliant article about that for the recent uh, winter olympics i think where norway just wipes the board completely yeah they then, do they win all the skiing yeah, things don't they absolutely everything tiny little country and then you sort of come home and you go mm, well done so there's no sort of no really swank applo- no, no, there's joy. no swank there's no, no joy it's joy <laughs> just a different type also, of joy i think it's a kind of in Holland, for example, if you go to the Bechenhof in Amsterdam, it's where all the richest merchants live, and the house is very plain, narrow and everything, but behind them they're palatial. Yes. You don't show it. You don't really hold up people who do that much better in that same way, yeah, I think. Yeah. And so they do try to keep it up. And sometimes that's a really, really good thing, but it can be quite a tricky thing Oh, I must say, well. I, do, I do know some background on this. So Kat, when she was a tiny Scandi, won a national writing competition and you'd have thought the school would be thrilled but for the same essay she got a B so she wouldn't get pig-headed. <laughs> you can get above yourself. No. That's exactly. so naughty. It's very Scandinavian. It's Calvinist it's, actually. Yeah. Yes, it is, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's funny because they sort of said, well, we, we save A's for special <laughs> cases and they go, well, what do I need to do? <laughs> International. So, get an A later. Anyway, on that Yes. <laughs> so, Charles, you're going to start us off this week and on a topic I didn't really think I would ever hear very much about, which is one-eyed warriors. There's so many categories of warriors out there, and I thought one-eyed would narrow it a bit. And it reminds me, actually, of this terrible book signing faux pas I made, where both of you are authors and you've done lots of book signings. And the one rule you uh, you learn very early on is that even the most normal-sounding name has many ways to spell it. And we've yes. all put an H in John, thinking we've done the right thing, and people looking very disappointed saying it's J-O-N. So I was in a very busy book signing. I wasn't looking up. And there was a queue, and then this woman came to the front, and she said, it's for Linda. And I didn't look up at all, and I went, is that Linda with an I? And she went silently, nothing. And I felt her glaring presence. And I went, "Mm, is it Linda with an I? And then I looked up and she was still silent and she was Linda with an eye. She had an eye patch on and it was the worst moment I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Happens, right? Well, I was trying to be be helpful. Have you done that thing? I do. I was having an argument, a difficult conversation with somebody. And he'd say something awkward and he'd just wink at me like that. And so i go, but then I realized it was a tick. Oh. And then he was actually really angry, but I thought he was just sort of thinking, that's all right, really. And I was going back. <laughs> well, I'm going to go back, way back to my childhood. And one of the poems, we were still in a sort of stage in late 60s England of having our childhood lit up, illustrated by Victorian moments. And there's a great long, epic poem about Horatio on the bridge. And this is a one of those moments in which is probably apocryphal. We're going back to late 6th century BC Rome, and the Etruscans are raiding. And there's one bridge, one functioning bridge, the Sublician Bridge of, of Rome. And it was going to be the way in for the invading forces. 
And everyone was running away along this bridge, apart from a junior officer in charge who's called Horatius. And Horatius said, no, we cannot let them in. And he shamed two of his senior officers into standing with him. And the three of them supposedly held the invading army off, just the three of them. And he is known as Horatius Cocles. And he had one eye. Now, it's not clear whether he had one eye while saving the bridge or as a result of defending it in time for the people behind him to destroy the bridge so that the invaders couldn't get into Rome. But he is my earliest one-eyed person of warrior status. And do you know what I love? He was properly rewarded for his bravery. He was given a, a crown as a reward and as much land as he could plow around in one day with a yoke of oxen. And also, you know, he was given one day's ration by every citizen of Rome. So quite a brave man. May not be entirely true, his story, but it lit up my childhood with its bravery. Uh, much more recently, in the early 15th century, there was a, a hero in the Czech Republic, and he was called John the One-Eyed. And he was an extraordinarily charismatic leader. In the Kingdom of Bohemia, he lost an eye at a young age, and he was nicknamed John the One-Eyed. But he declared loyalty to the teaching of Hus, the Czech theologian. But he was an undefeated Czech general himself. And during the Battle of Nekma in mid-1421, he lost his other eye when he was stabbed through it. And this left him completely blind. But even while blind in both eyes, he finished the battle and was on the winning side. And three years later, when he died, at quite an old age for then, in his mid-60s, he left in his will that he would have the skin taken off him and it had to be made into a drum skin that he wanted the army to continue to fight with during their future battles. And actually, he, he remained a distinctive figure in Czech history to the point that in the Second World War, a number of military units were named after him. And one of them, the, the first Czechoslovak partisan brigade, was among the first anti-Nazi guerrilla units in occupied Czechoslovakia. So I wanted to get across the, you know, the, the resounding bravery of these people down the ages. Can I bring in one of my favourites? Yes. One-eyed. It's not real, though. Mythical. Yes. And it's Odin. Look at um, yeah. Odin, so being the sort of all-father all and also the god of all the warriors, he only had one eye because he gave away his eye because he wanted to see what was going on in the world and he wanted extra wisdom so he sacrificed his eye he also stabbed himself with a sword and hung himself from a tree for nine days but part of that was that he gained all his wisdom and he had two birds in his shoulders Hugin and Munin thought yes. and memory and they would fly out and tell him so in, in lacking the eye but he could get the wisdom of seeing what was happening in the world which you know as a warrior god was going to be wow. so I guess you get informants and you get people Helping you. But there's a philosophical and interesting Thanks. one, isn't it, about you know, St. Paul, who we'll be talking about, a fascinating person. When he, before he was St. Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was on the road to Damascus and was blinded. But why was he blinded? In order that he might see. Yes. The conventional wisdom will not serve you here. You need to do something new and switch off your receptors and switch on some new ones. Well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? To be honest, these people that I've touched upon were great in their own way as tacticians long before they lost their eye. Their eye was part of the cost of being in the front line of battle. I mean, that's what we forget. Yeah. Nowadays, when we see a war, Putin's not in the front line and Zelensky's not in the front line. But in the old days, the leaders were expected to lead from the front and you were going to take the odd arrow or spear or later bullet. And then I have a, a one-eyed lady, a, a queen from... Uh, she reigned in Nubia in Africa 
between 40 and 10 BC. And she's called Queen Amanarenus. And she's really quite an impressive lady. The Nubians at this time were a hunter nation. And it seems that women were taught the art of archery as well and uh, had the prowess of the men. And this really led to a, a number of Nubian queens and warriors. And she's the most famous because she took on the Roman Empire. She essentially coincided with uh, the time of Cleopatra and Mark Antony. And after they died, the new emperor who was at this stage uncontested was Caesar Augustus. And he decided to defeat the Egyptians and then push on south into Nubia. Nubia is essentially where Sudan is now. And the queen's husband died in, in an early battle. And so she took the lead herself. And with her son beside her, she took on the Roman Empire. And extraordinarily, you know, she, she organized a surprise attack and led an army of about 30,000 Nubian soldiers, realizing that if she let the Romans advance on her, she hadn't got a hope. And she, in the fighting, she, she lost an eye, but she continued to fight on. And then when the Romans came to retaliate, uh, they made the mistake, the Nubians, of breaking up the statues to Caesar Augustus. And he was so furious, he sent an army down to get the Nubians in, in revenge. But she defeated them again. And she's one of the great victors against the Roman Empire, which was a, an all-conquering force for a very long time. And then I, I really want to look at a, another, probably one of the greatest generals of all time. In fact, Napoleon had him as one of his seven great military captains, and that is Hannibal who you know, is up there with Alexander the Great and Caesar as, as a recognized, and Gustavus Adolphus, if we look at Scandinavia. He's one of those legends of the military world. And he was, in fact, Rome's greatest adversary. He is a man of extraordinary cunning, really, on the battlefield. We think of him crossing the Alps uh, with his 38 elephants, many of whom sadly died on the way. But he ended up fighting against Rome. He came from Carthage. And he came across and fought overseas for 30 years with huge distinction. And his trademark battle was Cannae in 216 BC, in which he lured a vast Roman army, perhaps 80,000 men, into the center of his battle plan and then surrounded it and killed an enormous number of them, perhaps 50 to 70,000. In fact, it's been worked out that Hannibal in that battle, killed 500 Romans a minute. So he was a very effective warrior. He lost his eye. He, one of the reasons he always wrong-footed the Romans is he went where they didn't expect it was possible to pass, hence crossed the Alps with his elephants. And there was one area when Rome was defending itself where the Romans said that the Arno River Valley was impassable. It was basically a giant bog. And so, needless to say, that was the route that Hannibal took. It cost him a lot of his men, and it cost him an eye. He had uh, what we think was ophthalmia, a sort of swelling of the eyeball, which ended in him losing the sight of it. And going back to Cat's prosthetics, I don't think he, he actually had a replacement, but he had the eye removed, the dead eye, as it were, removed and buried, and uh, wore a patch. And that was his sort of trademark. But one of the greatest generals of all time and able to do extraordinary things. I like one of his tactics, actually, which was incredibly clever. He was encircled by Roman forces in 217. And the Romans were ready to attack. And then they saw and heard the Carthaginian army disappearing. They could see the torches going up the hill. And so they moved to go and head them off. But actually Hannibal had tied lit torches to the horns of cattle and they were tearing up the hill making a noise. 
and that let him slip away and he he managed to escape. You know, he was one of those people who was able to reinvent himself after the great military efforts and in fact, in the end, was was murdered not in battle. Did Marlborough have both eyes? Yes, Marlborough had both eyes. What makes a great tactician a great tactician? What is it about Napoleon or Marlborough or Hannibal or whoever? What do you need to have to be so brilliant at that? Well, Marlborough and Hannibal both had similar tactics, which was to lure the enemy into the centre and then attack on the flanks. That seemed to be, you know, you have a soft centre, lure them in and then hit them on the sides. So it's deception, essentially. It is. There's a lot of... It's second-guessing the very human reaction of your opposing commander as to what he's going to get wrong and then making the most of it, I think. A lot of people say one of the reasons that Napoleon lost the Battle of Waterloo is because he was really ill that day and he wasn't able to watch the battle because he was mainly on his bed. I think you need to be in tune with the day as it unwound. And also think of the scale of these battles. Tens of thousands of men doing different things. And how would you know what was going on, especially if you didn't have your full complement of eyes? Yes. Who was the last last sovereign to to die in battle, to lose his life in battle? That's a good question. Do you mean British? Well, was the last sovereign George III or so? I can't remember. Well, he he led in battle, didn't he? Not George III, but George I or II led in battle. I'm sure the disembodied voice will find out. The Scottish lost at Flodden Field in 1513. They lost their king and several princes when fighting against Henry VIII. The last monarch was George II at the Battle of Dettingen in 1743 during the War of Austrian Succession. The last European ruler to die in battle seems to have been Charles XII of Sweden in 1718, although one might also include F. Solano Lopez, the megalomaniac dictator of Paraguay in 1870. Thank you. How about your favourite fact, Charles, from all of this? Well, do you know, when I drew this subject, I thought I'd be talking a lot about Nelson, well, which would have, uh, yeah. Yeah, where's Nelson in this? <laughs> well, he didn't lose an eye. Oh, shut up. No. So, you know, we see Hollywood representations, adverts to do with Nelson or whatever it is, where he has an eye patch on. Nelson never wore an eye patch. He was involved in a very nasty cannonball incident off Corsica in 1794 when a cannonball hit a sandbag near him, and he did get some debris in his right eye. But he wasn't blinded. I mean, he was quite upset about this because he would have got a disability allowance. He did lose an arm, but he never convinced the doctors of the Navy that he had lost an eye. He admitted he could see light and dark. He lost some vision, but there was no discernible blemish on his eye other than the mark on his eyelid. And then, you know, the arm went in 1797, so he got his disability allowance then. He did have, interestingly, and I had no idea about this, he had a patch over his admiral's hat on the left side because his left eye was very sensitive to the light. And in a sort of, well, the equivalent of a post-mortem after his death in 1805, they worked out that he he would have gone blind in his left eye. It was a very weak eye. But fascinating to know, A, he wasn't blinded, and B, he didn't wear a patch. Interesting. Yeah. Such a powerful... In Iran, I mean, look at Nelson's column. In, we, in all our public remembrance of him, he is one-eyed. Maybe there's something in that. It's important for us. Well, I, I read about it, of course, and there was sort of this image of the wounded warrior. So the more wounded you could imagine him to be, the braver he must be. So people didn't disavow the, the idea that he was much mutilated. And the notion of the person seeing the world anew because they have to... Yes. I've got a Nelson fact. You'll know it, though. You'll know yeah. it. Okay. Anyway, whose sarcophagus was Nelson buried in? No, I don't know that. No, I don't know that. Cardinal Wolsey's. 
oh, that's yeah. tidy. What well, it wasn't Rome him? or something. Well, Cardinal Wolsey <laughs> fell from favour, you see. Oh, so okay. the magnificent sarcophagus that was to receive his earthly remains was not filled. And until oh. Nelson's death, when they thought, well, that would be fitting for him, and they placed it in a crypt directly under the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral at the centre of our national sense of ourselves. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Actually, he's quite nicely into my topic, which is also going to be on battles and fighting, I'm yes. afraid, this time. But I thought I'd go a bit more local. So I'm going to be talking about the Vikings, obviously, the Great Army, but also a battle that was fought pretty close here in Chippenham and the time when they actually captured Chippenham. So no, that's... come on, yes. Kat. Chippenham. Chippenham. Chippenham quick save fell yes. to the Vikings. <laughs> Did you not know that? No. But actually, one of what's usually thought of as one of the most important battles of England and in the creation of England has to do with Chippenham and the Great Army, and that's the Battle of Eddington, which was fought just down the road here. But as a part of that story, the Vikings were here in Chippenham. The group that we're talking about now is the Viking Great Army, and that's a big uh, new sort of army of mixed Scandinavian army that arrives on the British shores in 865. We know about it from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle uh, that says a great army appears, basically. And we've um, spent a lot of time researching and debating how big this great army is, because technically, it was quite interesting, in Anglo-Saxon sources, an army is any band of robbers or thieves or any gang above 35 people. So a great army is obviously anything more than 35 people. <laughs> but we think there's a few more than that. So people have tried to sort of count boats and But roughly, what, like what do they think it is? We think we're talking about a few thousand, um, probably, possibly as much as seven, eight thousand. We haven't really got a very good way of counting them, but that seems quite likely. But what they do, which is really different, so this isn't the Viking Age proper. Viking has been going on for six, seven decades. And it's a sort of step up. They're now looking for political conquest rather than just hit and run raids and, you know, undefended monasteries and all of that. And they go around and take the different kingdoms. So they take East Anglia, they go up and they take York and Northumbria. They go back and down a bit. They take Mercia, the central kingdom. But the one kingdom they never managed to get is Wessex, so the West Saxons. And Alfred the Great is in charge of Wessex. And he actually has a palace, a royal palace here in Chippenham. And, uh, yeah, so he travels around the country. So these these early medieval rulers, they don't stay in one place. They move from palace to palace and place to place. And this is one of them. And in 878, he was here over winter and over Christmas. And at that point, the great army had actually split up into two. One half went north and actually settled. And the other half started this game of cat and mouse against Alfred trying to actually capture Wessex. So they go to Cambridge, Wareham, Exeter, and then into Mercy again. And then 878, they try for Wessex. That's the sort of big prize, really, if they're going to get all of England. And um, they steal away from their camp after Twelfth Night to Chippenham and occupy it, chasing Alfred away. And this is when Alfred goes to the Somerset marshes, so the swamps, uh, building a fortification. And if you know the story of Alfred burning the cakes, this is when that happens. So he is basically, he's driven out, he thinks his entire kingdom is at stake. Did he burn his cakes? Well, I don't think he really did, no. actually. It sounds a bit too twee. It <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. That story comes in a little bit later and it's clearly a, a sort of literary device really to show how preoccupied he was. So what happens is that he's he's staying with a swineherd. Swineherd's wife says, oh, can you please look after my cakes or my bread that I'm, I'm baking? And he goes, yeah, of course I will. And then he's so busy drinking, I have to save his country, uh, his kingdom that he forgets. 
Anyway, so he gathers all these men and eventually they come back up and they have this battle at a place called Eddington, which again, we fight about where it is, but it's basically down here near Westbury. And the Saxons are successful. So they beat the Vikings quite quickly, even though they're very, very strong, chase them back to their fortification in Chippenham. There's a big siege and they essentially just take cut off all their resources all the way around here in Chippenham so that eventually they have no food or no water and they have to give up. And so they call it a, a truce, basically. Oh. And then there's a, there's a treaty after that and they agree to divide the country, essentially, at some point afterwards. What would Chippenham have looked like then, Kat? Yeah, so we don't know that much about it. It would probably be quite small, quite town. So you have this royal palace, you would have had, you know, churches and things. It's not a city. Obviously, we don't really have cities. It's not really a town as such. So I think it's pretty small. We don't know whether... a reliable baker as well. It's not (laughs) burning your cakes. Exactly, so you have access to food. Great educator, (laughs) terrible chef. Yes. We've got the River Avon, so that's that's good for transport as well. And houses built of stone or wood? There would be wood at this point. We don't really get, well, we get churches in stone at this point, but there's very, very few, at least remaining, so we don't really know about them, but we do get some that tend to be ecclesiastical. But it's uh, it's great. So we never found this battle. We've never found the Battle of Eddington. We've never found this Viking camp. So we could be talking seven or 8,000 people. We've never found it. But how, why? Why? They must leave evidence of conflict or something. Not very much. So we've done quite a lot of work recently on these Viking camps, and they're very transient. So what the Great Army does is it sets up camp for about three or four months over the winter, and then they gather up the troops, they fix their boats, they fix their weapons, and then they move on again. But it's a bit like a festival. So it's a bit like Glastonbury or something like that. They just come up with tents and go again. Pot shirts. They don't have pottery. They don't use pottery. What do they use? So wooden bowls. Not really. Yeah, lots, lots of wood, soapstone in Scandinavia as well. I mean, there is some pottery, but there's very little of it. I had no idea that this was a culture where potsherds were not a thing. I mean, I'm not going to say they absolutely don't use them, but they are rare. It's not so good. So in Roman, so as you will know, Charles, because we've been doing it so much Roman pottery yes. from our, our villa site, you know, it's fantastic. But then after that, the technology really deteriorates quite oh, a lot. That's so good. So that fits in with what I'm going to say. <laughs> I love the linking we've got here. Only so there we go. So yeah, so really, Chippenham, centre of... Extraordinary. I didn't even know where it was till today, I'm embarrassed to say. Well, I always wondered, why was it... You get lots of important places close together, which is unusual. Because you've got Chippenham and you've got Bath. Bath, of course, was Aquasulis in Roman Britain, was yeah. an important centre. Yeah. Why are they so close together? Simply because that was the way the court operated or it was to do with natural resources or defensive? Yeah, it can be similar things like that. And also, you know, these sort of way stations. So some go back much further, but quite often you have different things. So you have uh, roads of Bath, for example, you've got the Roman roads going down and then you've got the river, the River Avon goes all the way down to the rest of the channel. So it's these are really, really important transport points points as well. So sometimes I think that's where it starts. There we go. Centre of the world. Well, it's a bit like the Dane law under, you know, where power distributes itself. That's reflected in where people live and what they want to do, right? This comes from Eddington and this battle. So the Dane law. So after that, there's a division between Alfred and Guthrum, the Scandinavian king, where they decide to divide essentially areas under English law and Danish law. And that becomes so that was a law. negotiated settlement. Yeah. And then that later on becomes what we know as the Dane law and the Scandinavian settlement. Do you know what interests me about this? So you can say, okay, north of this line is Dane law, south of this line is English common law, whatever it might be. How closely did the people who lived on that line adhere to these? We don't know. It must have been a bit fuzzy, right? Yeah, probably not very much at all. So there is an actual boundary listed in that one treaty and it sort of explains partially up the rivers being used. 
it seems that you can see it in things like place names as well. So um, Althorpe, for example, is mm. a Thorpe is a Scandinavian name. That's right on the edge of that line. So that's one of the southwesternmost Thorpe names in the Look country. Charles, it's obvious genetic inheritance. <laughs> yes, yes, well, there we go. Screams Viking. Bit of bone crushing. Yeah. I find it fascinating reading in history about places that are quite sort of humdrum to us, but were really important. When I was writing a biography of Prince Rupert of the Rhine, one of the most dramatic and charismatic leaders of the Civil War, I found it rather difficult to drum up excitement when he rode to Newport Pagnell, because <laughs> it, it just doesn't sound very good. Well, there was a, a saint, of uh, an English saint of the early English church who was picked up by angels and then dropped down near Daventry, which doesn't seem right, does it? <laughs> well, one of the great leaders of the Civil War, a man called John Lambert, was captured fleeing from a battle, and I mark it out as the Waitrose and Daventry's where he was caught. <laughs> His horse got bogged down there. But isn't that interesting? Because we overlay, don't we? Like the car park underneath which the Zarabich Spaniel is buried. Yes. You know, I love those people when you go to somewhere like Rome, and somewhere like San Clemente, which is sort of, well, it's paleographic. What do I mean? A paleological church, an ancient church, and then you have an early church, and then you have a medieval church, and then you have a Renaissance church, all built one mm. on the other. Or you can have a. <coughs> dog in a car park in a... You could have a king in a car you park. You could have a king, absolutely. Very good. So... Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do we have a favourite favorite fact? Oh, so I think one of my favourite facts on this is is some of the people involved. and like the fact that we've got some names of them. So we've got Alfred, we've got Guthrum. But there's these other kings, and they're called Arnon and Oskatel and Halfdan, who were also part of it just before. But we've lost them. We don't know what happened. So they were there, so but they're kind of lost from history. So where they went, we don't oh, really. don't know. They might have could be So much we don't know, right? So... On to you, Richard, to talk about condiments. Condiments, yes. Well, what is a condiment? Well, there's all sorts of answers to that question. I suppose we think of it as perhaps a table sauce now. You think of tomato ketchup, perhaps, or HP sauce or tartar sauce, whatever it might be. There's one that we use regularly in Britain today, which I think has probably got the most obvious connection to an ancient condiment, and that is Leon Perrin's Worcestershire sauce. Now, I don't know if it's used in Norway much, but you know what it is, Kat, right? Yeah. You'll find it in almost every British kitchen, I should dare say. And it is a runny, savoury sauce that is added to soups and stews very often or mints or something to give a certain sort of tanginess. And it was made by Mr. Lee and Mr. Perrins, who were chemists in Worcester. 
in the early 19th century, and I think it was about 1813, they had a customer who was in the Indian Army uh, who called in and said, I want you, he gave him a recipe because he got used to the spicy foods of that country and rather liked them, as so many English people do. And he said, right, come up with something, here's a recipe. And they made this sauce, and he tried to it's absolutely disgusting, and indeed it was. So they just put it on a shelf. And then 18 months later, either Mr. Lee or Mr. Perrin, I can't remember which, went and sampled it and found that it was, in that course, it had sort of matured and become absolutely delicious. So they bottled it and Worcestershire sauce was invented. The real ingredient in it that's the interesting one is anchovies, oh, right? Yeah. Anchovies famous as a flavor. You know, if you're having lamb, if you put anchovies, along with some rosemary and garlic, perhaps into that meat, it's delicious. Anchovies on a pizza, of course. But anchovies go back to perhaps the most significant and important condiment in terms of its origins in history, and that's garum. Mm. Garum was the Roman... Look, you know about garum, right? Yes. Do you know about garum? I don't. Well, wherever you went in the Roman Empire, one of the markers of being part of the Roman Empire was the availability of garum. And basically, it was anchovies that were mashed up with the guts of larger fish and left to ferment for two months. And then the liquor was drained away and strained and bottled, and that was your garum. And actually, the residue was also used as well in various other ways. But that liquor, which was sometimes as highly prized as wine, the finest amber in colour, was garum. And it was added to foods of all kinds, partly as a flavour enhancer, but actually, interestingly, until the sort of development of what we might recognize as haute cuisine, condiments and sauces were really there to disguise the flavor of food, either because it was not particularly palatable or to demonstrate the wealth of your host that he or she had access to these spices, which were so special. Now, what we were talking about earlier about the collapse of Roman influence and the rise of what is called the Dark Ages, dark, well, that's of course a rather misleading expression, sugar, salt, vinegar, those essential elements in sauces or condiments. Well, of course, they were available in the Roman Empire, but it took an empire for them first to be processed and second to be deliverable to where you want them to go. So with the Dark Ages, the system that produced that stuff collapsed, and with that, condiments kind of collapsed. We all went back to eating boring food until really the rise of Islam and the Crusades. And then all of a sudden people were going out from Western Europe and meeting people from the Near East and picking up stuff and bringing it home. It all get most interesting, really, is when you get into the 19th and 20th centuries, when what we ate became particularly important, and with the increase in wealth and availability of foodstuffs and leisure and everything, people wanted to enliven stuff. In France, of course, you have the great sources, the mother sources as they are known, Hollandaise, Espagnol, which is also sauce Robert, it's known as, you know, the sort of basic ingredients usually to do with a kind of meat stock that was the basis of all sorts of sauces. But in Britain, things really got good. Well, for example, let us speak of mustard. Mm. Mustard was the most popular spice in England. The reason was, was that it could be grown here. So there was uh, black mustard, green mustard, and white mustard could be grown in these parts. So for that reason, availability just made it very, very popular. And nothing livened up a dreary dish better than mustard. So mustard became a big thing. Tewkesbury in the 15th century was a huge centre for the production of mustard. And my favourite fact will take us back there. But in terms of the tables that we know today and the mustards we know today, let us go to Durham. And there in Durham, there were monks of Durham who grew mustard and processed mustard. And there was a woman in the early 18th century called Mrs. Clements. And Mrs. Clements, we don't know what her first name was, developed a method for milling mustard to produce not quite a fine flour. It wasn't that good. But it was a form of mustard that could be mixed with water or vinegar, whatever it might be, and turned into a sort of condiment, powerful, pungent stuff. She mixed it with a little bit of horseradish too to give it a bit of kick. Horseradish grew very plentifully around Durham. And that was her. So all of a sudden, here was a 
former muster that we knew about her. And she thinks she might have done very well about that, but Mrs. Clements didn't patent her process. Big Miss, mistake. Big yes. mistake. Messrs. Keene of Garlic Hill, London, they started selling a similar preparation. Keen as mustard is thought as an expression perhaps to come from that as keen of mustard. But it was Mr. Coleman, Jeremiah Coleman of Norwich, who was the person who actually finally developed a process for milling a fine mustard flour. And so Coleman's mustard was born, that bright, bright yellow mustard, that pungent mustard. What is on every tube, jar and tin of Coleman's mustard? What is the picture? Oh, I, can't remember I don't now. know. Just remember the yellow. Yes, and red. Durham Bull. Oh. It's a reference, Durham Bull to the origins of Miss Clement, Mrs. Clements in Durham in 1720 oh. or thereabouts. It's not the only source, of course, is there? Tomato ketchup. Enormously. Ketchup's original. Nobody quite knows the origin of the word ketchup. Some say it's Javanese. Some think it's Japanese. Some think it comes from Arabic cultures. We don't really know. But we know that quite early on, a ketchup was a sort of pickling liquid in which stuff like perhaps walnuts or mushrooms, mushroom ketchup, still a feature of English kitchens now, would be found. Tomato ketchup sort of really got going in America, but it was a rather thin and unattractive and rather liquid sort of dribbly sauce rather than the rather stiff sauce we know today. And do you know where that happened? No. It was the Pure Food and Drink Act of, I think, 1906 in America, when all of a sudden the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, started getting going. And they realized that in order to preserve the length of ketchup's life for sale, sodium benzoate was added. And they felt that sodium benzoate was not something which should be added to ketchup. So the ketchup manufacturers had to come up with a way of extending the life of their product without using that chemical. And so they used ripe tomatoes, which were high in pectin, which helped as a preservative, and they increased the sugar and they increased the vinegar. So it became that tangy sauce that everyone knows and loves today. Not everyone knows and loves today. Hotel breakfast this morning, bacon bat. What did I have in it? Not ketchup, but... Daddy sauce or okay sauce? Brown sauce. Brown sauce. The greatest brown sauce of all is, of course, HP sauce. Ah, yes. Did you know HP sauce and daddy's sauce were made by the same person? Goodness. Step with me to Nottingham. <laughs> Nottingham at the end of the 19th century, where Mr. Garton used herbs and spices, again, that had arrived in the British Empire from India and places, and he made a delicious brown sauce. He heard that it was being served in the parliamentary estate. And so in 1895, 1896, I can't remember, he called it HP sauce, named after the Houses of Parliament. On the bottom of this day, yes, you will see yeah. the Houses of Parliament. There is a... Do you know what another nickname for HP sauce was? No. Wilson's Gravy, because Harold Wilson, who was the great Labour Prime Minister of the 1960s and 70s, wanted to present himself as a man of the people. He was actually a middle-class boy from Huddersfield, mm. but he wanted to present himself as a man of the people. And Mrs. Wilson said, oh, he always slaps HP all over his food. Wilson's Gravy, so it was called. Anyway, so he made this sauce in 1895, Mr. Gotton, in, um, in Nottingham. And then, unfortunately, he defaulted on his payments to the Midland Vinegar Company. And Mr. Moore of the Midland Vinegar Company came to see him. And the result of that was he paid him 150 quid. And for that, he got the rights to HP sauce and a promise from Mr. Gotton never, ever to tread into the commercial exploitation of pickles ever, ever again. He bought it for 150 quid in 2006. HP Sauce and the company it was part of was sold for £440 million. Oh, sound investment. Yes. This is rather traumatising for me. I worked in a factory 40 years ago in Dunstable for a, a supermarket firm called Pierce Duff. And I one of my duties was to do quality control of horseradish sauce. And horseradish oh, right. is a very knobbly root. 
And I have to say, I was always slightly surprised that they considered it was clean because it's very hard to completely clean a horseradish. Anyway, it was a very short service uh, position for me because one of my duties was to weigh the uh, muesli every sort of <laughs> thousand packets. And they gave me a packet of muesli, which was the perfect weight. And it had nuts and bolts, metal nuts and bolts in it. And then at the end of my shift one day, I was walking back to my position and shook the muesli packet I had in my hand, and it had muesli in it. And so my special packet with nuts and bolts had gone on the conveyor belt and been packaged. And I went to confess this to the manager, and he made it clear that I didn't need to come back the next day. Yeah. But you, well, I don't know about muesli, but the horseradish thing, because horseradish is so difficult to work with because yeah. it, it gives off um, a vapor, which is not just vapor spray, which is incredibly painful it's, if you it's get very that. acrid stuff, yes. Isn't it interesting? So much of the sources that we most love do have that powerful pungency to them yes. and i think originally it was to mask the spoiled nature well that's the whole yes. I, I don't know if it's true rich you probably know but wasn't that the why curry became so popular because you're dealing with you, you know quite often quite aged warmed up meat and you needed to take away the nasty flavor and also plain diet i think probably our taste buds after a while begin to yearn for something yes. but here's a bit of hp sauce well, so, you know kind of it's losing market share every year and do you know why hipsters smashed avocado on sourdough. No, come on. You always blame <laughs> millennials for this, all this stuff. It's not fair. It's true. I'll tell you why. Smashed avocado on sourdough, perfectly fine breakfast, but you don't want HP sauce on no, it. You don't want a powerful, up. rich, salt, tangy, sweet sour sauce to That's cut true. through the fat and luscious of a sausage or bacon. It's too strong. And also, everyone's using sriracha now and stuff like that. So yeah. HP sauce, perhaps the uh, 440 million pounds might have been... A Can I say, it does seem a very 70s thing, doesn't it, when you think about it? I love it, though. I couldn't eat a sausage It's overpowering. I love mustard and horseradish, but I find... There's something rather bleak about HP. It just blows, blows it out. Confession. You've never had it. I've never had it. Oh my goodness! You know there are posh versions of HP. Have you ever had Oxford sauce, John? No, I haven't. <laughs> Oxford sauce is extremely good. It's a slightly runnier brown sauce, but with the yes. um, chili in it too. Bird's eye chili. Sounds like a very bread. optimistic rebranding. You're going to need my favourite fact. I you? want your favourite fact, please, Richard. 1535, King Henry VIII is on his travels and he comes to Tewkesbury, famous for its mustard. The mustard there was prepared by women of the town who took this milled mustard, mixed it with horseradish, Mm -hmm. at great risk to their eye health mm -hmm. and then they formed it into balls moistened it formed it into balls and left it to dry and that was what you would get your Tewkesbury mustard and you would shave a bit of that off into perhaps verjuice or something like that and make it into a paste Falstaff says it of someone in Henry IV he says his wit is as thick as a Tewkesbury mustard you wouldn't want to give that to the king, would you? So what do they give? They took those mustard balls and they covered them in gold leaf and they handed Henry VIII a pair of golden balls, Tewkesbury golden balls. There you are. Very hard to follow that. Very good. That was a good I fact. I can't leave that so. alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. We've got to the, the favourite part where our disembodied voice, have you made a decision today already? Uh, I have. Uh, just to say, Richard, uh, Worcestershire sauce first uh, surfaced in the 1830s, actually, rather than 1803. And you're right, developed, obviously, by a pair of chemists to replicate the condiment eaten by Lord Marcus Sands, the third Baron Sands, whilst he was serving as the governor of Bengal. Thank you. I think I actually said 1813 rather than 1803, <laughs> which was incorrect, I grant you. Neither were right. <laughs> Neither <laughs> were right. Three. There was One was three. nearer. Yeah. You're in a hole. Stop digging. Right? <laughs> Slightly nearer. Uh, the winner this week... It's going to be Richard, Golden yes. Balls. 
Two in a row. Golden balls. I knew that would work for me. I think we now have your code name on the WhatsApp group. Golden balls. <laughs> yes. We'll have to rename you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It was been a very great pleasure. I learned an awful lot. Too. There we go. Yes. Wow. Well, I, 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 yeah, I love that. Not condescending. Nelson. <laughs> Nelson, not blind. Yes. No eye patch. No. Yeah. Whatever nice. next. Napoleon didn't stick his hand in his jacket, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> so then, topics for next week. Richard, yes. can you please go down the rabbit hole of St. Paul? I would love to. One of my heroes, kind of problematic heroes, but heroes. I'd love to find out why. And Charles, I would like you to get one of our listeners' suggestions, oh, yes. actually, which is secret codes and ciphers. Wonderful. And I'm going to be researching commonplace books. Oh, I only just learned about them recently. So that's that for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps other people find us when they're looking for something new to listen to. You can also suggest other rabbit holes for us to fall down in future episodes by sending an email to rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. And thank you to everyone who's done so, so far. Don't forget, each week one of us will be in our new Rabbit Hole Detectives column in the Daily Telegraph discussing a favourite fact or two. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, let your need guide your behaviour. Mm, quite profound. Mm, very, this time. So, goodbye. 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 goodbye.